Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of This Week in Startups, your favorite tech business news podcast. And uh, we've got a great show for you today. First up, we're going to talk about the streaming wars. Uh, all of these streaming platforms are going to spend $140 billion on content in 2022. We're going to break down their different approaches. We're going to go to an archival clip of me on CNBC predicting Disney's ascension in this space. It's basically a reverse Professor G uh, prediction. In other words, it's correct. Uh, who's the sniper in all of this? Who sprays and prays? It's a great uh, overview of all the streaming platforms. We are also going to talk about Elizabeth Warren's take on grocery stores and whether the senator is gaslighting or just doesn't understand the grocery industry. Don't worry, this is not all politics. We really are trying to dig into the economic understanding or lack thereof here and talk about what it means for when we talk about how business works in this country. And then the first episode of Angel season six, Mac, the VC joins the show. The season's theme is first time funds. And the discussion between Jason and Mac, you are not going to want to miss. This is interesting. You guys covered so much social and economic territory. And also, mm. I learned a lot about raising a fund. Uh, and so we, we talked about Joe Lonsdale's crazy tweets. So uh, and that we haven't talked about that on the show. It's going to be a great episode. Stick with us. Season six of Angel is brought to you by Embroker. The Embroker startup insurance program helps startups secure the most important types of insurance at a lower cost and with less hassle. Save up to 20% off traditional insurance today at embroker.com slash twist. While you're there, get an extra 10% off using offer code twist. Our crowd. Our crowd helps you invest early in pre-IPO companies alongside professional VCs. If you're interested in investing, you can join our crowd for free at ourcrowd.com slash twist. And LinkedIn Jobs. A business is only as strong as its people and every hire matters. Post your first job for free at linkedin.com slash angel. All right, let's talk about the streaming wars because the streaming wars have reached an amount of money that makes them essentially stratospheric, it sounds like. According to Wells Fargo projections, the nine biggest media technology companies, which I'm going to say is all of them, <laughs> are going to invest $140.5 billion in 2022. And we have to assume that the, the vast majority of that is going to be on content. HBO is planning to spend $18 billion, Netflix, $17 billion. Disney, $33 billion. They have a lot more brands. I sort of wonder, I mean, I have a lot of thoughts and questions about this, but doesn't this just mean that, by the way, incumbency is unassailable? Like, you could never break into this market at this point, could you? That's a great question. Um, it would be very hard because uh, there's certain IP that's incredibly powerful, and that's Disney's obvious superpower. Uh, but HBO is doing original content, um, mm -hmm. very little, you know, IP based content. They will go back to their own personal well and do something like, I guess, the many saints, you know, the Sopranos, uh, sequel, uh, or the matrix sequels or sex in the city sequel. So, I mean, they're, they're mining some IP, yeah. but HBO is a lot of new stuff. Um, and I think HBO is the real story here. Just looking mm -hmm. at my own consumption and watching how good HBO is and HBO was always cruising like 30 million members. And I think they're up to 77 million members or something like that. And they've wow. had a great run of a lot of unique IP that they, you know, did themselves. And so this, stuff like Curb Your Enthusiasm, 
amazing, you know, people coming back to that. But they did a show called Hacks. They did a show uh, called The Flight Attendant. They've so done good. a lot of shows that I, I see are getting, you know, Mayor of Easttown, just original mm-hmm. IP, Euphoria, Secession, Insecure. So many great, you know, appointment watching shows. Uh, yep. White Lotus saw, was pretty good. This had reminded me that I saw a tweet from Sam Sanders from NPR the other day, and he was like, HBO Max has yet to let me down and lists a bunch of those yep. original Sex Lives of College Girls, Euphoria, Righteous yep. Gemstones. Uh, I a may Black destroy Lady you was show. amazing. I may destroy you. And he was like, I can't think of another streamer this good so consistently. Like, we know that content is king. Yeah. And clearly HBO has the content. Mm-hmm. It does seem to indicate, though, that like, that's it. I mean, I guess, you know, what is the competition for these large streamers, YouTube and TikTok? I guess, you know, for, for time, but if people do like to watch shows, yeah. even young people. So as much time as people are People may spend, you know, hours a day on social, mm-hmm. but they're going to spend $15 a month on these. And I think that's the big story here is just what an amazing bargain these are. Yeah. You know, if you're, if you've got kids, Disney for 10 or $15 a month, I think people would pay three times that for the product. So, mm-hmm. it be, and because of the global audience, these things are hitting hundreds of millions of subscribers. So, Netflix is at 250, I believe, or somewhere in that range. We don't have that in the notes here, but HBO, I think, was at 75 million already. Uh, Disney's way over 100 million. I believe that there will be 500 million to a billion subscribers. Just let that sink in for a second on one of these services. And uh, I kind of got laughed off of uh, CNBC. We can pull that clip at some point where I was saying, listen, I think Disney, this is the best thing that'll ever happen to Disney is going direct Mm -hmm. because they'll have everybody's credit card. And for the first time, they'll have a direct relationship with their actual audience and they will be able to sell tickets to disney world or disneyland Mm -hmm. inside the app or they'll be able to say hey listen you watch a lot of star wars did you know about the star wars merchandise and in disney plus you don't have a merch option but you could see if somebody watched all of book of boba fett they could uh, then cut to um you know at the end of the show say would you like to buy this merch now they haven't done that yet but I mean, come on. If you were watching The Mandalorian and they said, here's one of 100,000 first Grogu's, uh, the Baby Yodas. Oh, my I've God. They would have I sold. know. That is a weird miss. And maybe Disney doesn't care because they make. I mean, I think they don't care because they make so much money. But part of the reason that they've been so into franchises historically is the merch yep. potential. And they have kind of. That's been a bit of a whiff when it comes to some of these Disney originals, especially around the Star Wars stuff. I mean, they didn't even have. Baby Yoda merch for like no it was a full all year bootleg. before making it on Etsy. Yeah, it was bootlegs. I know because we bought some bootleg stuff for Christmas. Mm-hmm. Not bootleg, like Etsy stuff. Etsy Which stuff. I guess is that it is bootleg. Yes, they've I got cease and desist just because it's done by an individual. Yeah. Other things that are kind of fascinating about the difference too is HBO does do this like really high quality content, and uh, per our wonderful producer, I don't know who came up with this, but this is genius. HBO is a sniper. Netflix uh-huh. is a spray and pray. So HBO is doing less at much higher quality. And Netflix is just like, whatever. We'll greenlight it. Niche audience, let's go. Yep. Uh, And then Disney is obviously just franchise central. So what is this chart showing here? For those of you watching at youtube.com slash this weekend, or now Spotify has video. Thank you. Shout out, Daniel. Thanks for including us. You can watch video. And then, of course, we do have a video feed on Apple Podcasts as well for the seventh uh, most popular tech podcast in the world. Now number seven. Okay. You gotta it, love it. 
Yeah. Thanks for that volume, friends. Thank you. Thank you for your reviews and everything else. So what are we looking at here? So I think we're looking at the original series and how people rated them, which shows, as you can see, how kind of targeted HBO Mm -hmm. is like way, 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 way fewer dots that people love, right? Watchmen, outstanding, like lots of dots in the outstanding category. Netflix, Mm -hmm. tons of dots, like a freaking blood spatter from from (laughs) Law and Order all down in average and below or good. And then once you get into exceptional and outstanding, Netflix has like only a couple of dots. Mm. Although, as you can see, exceptional, The Mandalorian from Disney, Game of Thrones, and Netflix gets two here, Stranger Things and The Witcher, which is awesome. The Witcher's good? I love The Witcher. I gotta get into that. What is The Witcher? Is it like uh, Game of Thrones slash? It's Game of Thrones E. It's based on um, a video game. A uh, long-running right. video game series. I even read the books. Like I'm that much of a nerd, but yeah, wow. it's like this. You know, the guy, this nerd. guy, like loner, hot grunting loner who can do magic, gets oh. involved in wars, and there's wars between magicians and people. And he, you know, it's yeah, it's great. It's like a Game of Thrones if it were a procedural. Mm. He's like a cop, yeah. magic cop. I am just buying everything now. I just I bought Paramount Plus because I wanted to watch the South mm-hmm. Park. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have Amazon, and I have my wife like Star Trek. Uh, I got Amazon, although Amazon seems to be whiffing right now. I don't, I can't tell you anything good on Amazon except for the boys, which, you know, the boys is excellent. The boys and is they excellent. Have the $5 billion Lord of the Rings series coming out later this year. So. That's true. There's a oh, $5 right. billion dollar Lord of the Rings series coming. I am that's watching, a big bet. they have an okay library. I'm actually watching um, Mad Men on Amazon. Oh, you know, I never watched Mad Men. I, I never did either. Here. I just started yeah. it. Oh, there's your clip. Oh, is baby my clip Jason. Ready? All right. I guess the baby we have face to assassin. Oh God! I just I hate looking at Fat Jason, but I, I mean, I look like a linebacker, but okay, uh, gets my best interest here. But let's hear if I got something right. A gigantic business, so I think there'll be actually four of these services that have a hundred million plus subscribers, and that'll be you know the HBO, Hulu, Disney, Netflix, and you know who knows who else will will get there. Maybe Directv or YouTube. But uh, multiple winners in the in the winner's circle for this one, and Disney will be either number one or number two. They could even eclipse net, uh, Netflix. I know that sounds crazy to say right now, but if we look at it with a 10-year arc, it, it's completely possible they'll catch up. I, I think it's probable they'll catch up, and it's possible that they could uh, edge them out. I'm going to quickly explain one crucial type of insurance that all startups need. E and O insurance that covers errors and omissions, and it helps you scale your business because any major customer is going to ask you, Hey, do you have E and O? You need to have E and O if we're going to close this deal. If you want us to sign on the dotted line and you want to get the do re me, you're going to need to have E and O. So if you don't have business insurance, you failed one of the first steps of being a founder, and startups should look no further than our friends over at Embroker. Embroker's technology saves you time and money. Prices are up to 20% lower with better coverage than the incumbents. You can go from sign up to quote and purchase in just 10 minutes. When you work with a broker instead of the incumbents, you're not dealing with these large, slow corporations. And the sign up takes days, not weeks. The process is totally transparent and there's no opaque pricing because it's 2022, folks. There shouldn't be any opaque pricing, right? Save us time, save us money. That's what a broker does. And you get a better quality of service. Better faster, cheaper. That's what it's all about. And that's what Embroker does. So to instantly buy custom built insurance for startups, go to Embroker.com slash twist. While you're there, you can get an extra 10% off by using my promo code, which is TWIST, 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 twist. 
and broker.com slash twist. Literally, they laughed at me. And I don't know why this is not, sometimes I'm just like, I don't understand why (sighs) when I make a prediction like this, it's not absolutely clear that it's so obvious. Mm -hmm. Because Disney at the time owned Marvel, Star Wars, Pixar, and all the Disney characters. It's completely obvious to me that if you have children, you have no choice but to buy the archive. It's so, well, I mean, if you think about CNBC and its audience, and I find this fascinating because now this is like the second or third clip we've seen where they literally laughed at you based on a prediction that last, that, that extended past the six hours of the trading day. Yes. And it's like everything that's wrong with markets Mm. is tied up in that CNBC reaction. They're like, oh, I'm sorry. We only operate in six hour mental increments. And Jason's I think at like, that time, well, Disney I Plus wasn't. So I operate on 10 yeah. years. I don't think Disney Plus was launched at that, right? When did Disney Plus launch? Because that was 2017. That, clip. that, that was, was way before. It launched November 2019. Okay, mm. so Disney Plus launched in 2019. I said that two years before Disney Plus happened. So just to give you an idea, what is Disney at now, Molly? 118 million. Disney's okay, at 118 million. Still, they have not overtaken Netflix yet. Okay, but in two or three years in market, they're halfway there. They're halfway there. If you don't understand what's happening here, if when did Netflix launch their streaming service? That was 10 years ago? At least, yeah. Orange is the New Black was like their first original mm-hmm. IP. They had other people's IP. So with a 10-year start, let's say it was a 10-year start, they're at 210, 214. In mm-hmm. two years, you got to half. Does anybody yep. see what's happening here? It's so obvious. 2007, by the way. 2007. When- okay, hold on a second. That's Netflix a 15-year. as old as my teenager. So they yeah, have a 15-year head start, yeah, 15 basically, year head start. for all intents and purposes. And in two years, Disney is halfway caught up. More than half. Yeah. 60% yeah. of the way. They are going to blow past them. I yeah. will say Netflix and Disney in five years will have 300 million members each. Yeah. That's my prediction. Um, I know that maybe they're, yeah, 44 million year-over-year growth for Disney, 4 million year-over-year growth for Netflix. So Netflix is growing 2% a year. Disney was growing like almost 100%, right? They added mm-hmm. 44. No, they rolled 50% year over year. Yeah, because they're starting from a cold start. And Netflix keeps getting more expensive. And so far, Disney has leaned into just keep growing at $7.99 a Such month. Such a it's better strategy. Plan. It's cheaper. Netflix Eight is bucks. so expensive now that it's the one that I don't watch and I'm thinking about getting rid of. Because mm. for the $18 premium, like if you I, want 4K, if you want HD, yeah, you're paying I, 18 bucks a month. I'm like, I don't know. All this stuff is kind of on cable. I have to say Netflix, I have been having a hard time finding good content. I go my, right now. It's HBO Max, Disney, Hulu, Netflix is my order of like if I had to get if you had those four. You could only pick two. I'm probably going HBO, Disney. I'm going and HBO Netflix, Disney. Hulu. I'm Ooh. giving up. God, what are Hulu you? It would be a hard one to get rid of, though. Well, of course, of live. So if you take out the live component, well, this uh, is where Hulu we watch originals. SNL. Um, yeah, that's true. Yeah, you know, SNL. I mean, you can watch though, SNL basically on YouTube now. They put everything okay. up there. Like truly, 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 gun to my head, I'm going to say HBO and Disney. Yeah, I'm in your head. Yep. I think it's a, it's a yeah. Uh, HBO Disney is a pretty good. Uh, so my last question before we move okay. on, though, is like, is is this kind of spending on content an unwinnable war? Because if you project even further than five years, like, sure, they'll have 500 million or a billion subscribers globally combined. But, like, you still got to keep up that spending. So, okay, because content is a trap, as we know. 
Well, do you though, is the question, because I do think these archives become so good. You're watching Mad Men, I'm watching The Wire. So mm -hmm. I am catching up. Mm -hmm. And so I do think what happens is there becomes this base of content that's so good that when you look at why people stick with a service, like I'm never getting rid of HBO because every couple of years I I watch some Sopranos episodes and now I'm watching The Wire. I'm like on season three or four of The Wire. I'm loving it. Uh, somebody's going to discover Mad Men. Some people haven't watched Breaking Bad. Some people yeah. haven't watched Game of Thrones. I think the archive, we are in this like archive building mode right now. And then when I think they hit scale, um, they may not need to spend as much, but they'll have much more ability. So let's just do some do back. Like one or two hits a year. $8 for $8 a month, Disney, 118 people, 118 million subscribers. So that means that, you know, call it uh, nine, it's almost a billion dollars per month. That is crazy. <laughs> so they're making 12 billion. They're spending Disney 33 billion. So that means they're net $20 billion negative for their archive. And so if you look at it as an investment in the archive, I think it'll be fine. Yeah. Uh, I think that the long-time archive will just keep growing. And then, you know, when they hit 300 million uh, subscribers, and let's say they go to $10, they will have pricing power. They'll probably go up a little bit. Uh, then they'll be making $3 billion a month, $36 billion a year. So that's the math they're doing. Yeah. Is there a, they're, they're looking at what I knew in 2017, which is they'll have three, four, five hundred million on these services globally. And if they average 10 bucks, then you're got $30 billion in cash flow coming in. Yeah. Crazy business. Now you add merchandise to on top merch. of that. Parks. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Licensing. Exactly. It's going to be crazy. Yeah. yeah. And for Netflix, you know, let's say we split the, because they have a lot of international, let's just put them at $10 a month. They're making 24 billion. We actually know their revenue. They're making 30 billion a year and spending 17 billion. So there's the perfect example. They're at scale, mm -hmm. Molly. Mm -hmm. They're maximizing price because they're not in the build mode. They're in the extraction mode. Yeah. So they don't care about growing 20, 30% and getting to 200 million. They care about extracting max value. So they're definitely in the black, right? They're, are they profitable, yeah. Nick? They must be profitable. Um, and sure. then how profitable? Yeah, like are, yeah. four or five billion in profits for the year yeah. they're expected to have, something like that. Yeah. You um, know what we have not even mentioned here, which yeah. I find kind of am amazing, is Apple. Yeah, Apple is a black box. I don't think they're releasing their numbers. And, and is anybody, I mean, they had some good shows, but the velocity did, does not seem to be there. And we have no idea what their spending is going to look like. I think for them. But they've had it, some expensive shows. I mean, like it was very foundation. boring, but Foundation was astonishing. I did the first episode. You know, I, I don't know if you have this uh, in your relationship, but I did watch the first episode. My wife was like, I want to watch that. And I'm like, oh, God. I mean, we, we have a couple of shows we watch together. We can barely keep up with them. But she falls asleep. And I'm like, babe, I, I really want to watch Foundation. And she's like, <laughs> God. I mean, it's, a, it's a hard one to stay awake through, although it's so pretty. Yes. That, oh, Ted I mean, Lasso. I followed it through to the end because I had, oh, Ted Lasso. Right, obviously. Right which that. is so funny. Like Apple, I wonder what their strategy is going to be going to be because they aren't content first. So they can afford to potentially put out two or three of these great shows a year. Like they could move into the library sniper. phase, yeah. maybe. Super sniper. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, with the amount of cash they have, they could buy another company. There's always been this idea that Apple and Disney would merge. Mm -hmm. If we didn't have, you know, the issues around antitrust, an Apple-Disney merger at this point in time would be extraordinary. That'd be insane. That'd and be it would be doable. Company. Yeah. Um, you know, a Apple's market cap, I mean, they're very similar companies in how they approach things. It seems like Apple's market cap 
almost $3 trillion. Disney market cap, $287 billion. Uh, I think Apple has $200 billion in cash. Apple could just buy Disney at any point in time uh, mm-hmm. if they were allowed to. Mm-hmm. It would be 10% of their market cap. And can you imagine if when you bought an iPhone, your Apple Prime, what do they call the Apple bundle? I have the Apple bundle. If the Apple bundle included Plus. Disney Plus and access to theme parks and your iPhone got you into theme parks or whatever. Oh, my Lord. Yeah. What a great merger that would be. Oh. Like that's <laughs> a, as a capitalist. Like from it. Oh, as a capitalist, like the, the things you could do with Apple stores having Disney products and, you know, Mandalorian I mean, uh, AirPods. And, and they're I both mean, I gotta, equally ruthless at sort of like branding, control, extracting max profits. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for me, that's yeah. the ultimate. I mean, yeah. you put that together, then you just, yeah. It's time for another R Crowd Deal of the Week. Right now, you can join R Crowd's investment in Blue Tree. According to the deal memo, Blue Tree has developed a process to significantly reduce the sugar in any natural liquid. Sounds like something I need. Huh? I'm trying to lose some weight here. This lowers the health risks while retaining great taste. And you know what? That great taste is what I'm looking for. So, Blue Tree has already signed a five year, 100 million liter contract with an industry leader, according to their deal memo. And you want to read those deal memos because they're going to make you smart. Speaking of investing, it's clear that all over the world, tech companies are innovating and driving returns for investors. Well, Arcrowd analyzes many of these startups across the entire global private market. Then they select the companies with the greatest growth potential and bring them to you. From personalized medicine to cybersecurity to robotics to quantum computing and more. In state-of-the-art labs, startup garages, and anywhere in between, our crowd identifies innovators. So you can invest when growth potential is greatest, which means early. So here's your call to action. If you're an accredited investor, you can join our crowd for free at OURCROWD.com slash twist and review the current deals. There is no payment involved until you decide to invest. So go sign up for free and check out those deal memos at OURCROWD.com slash twist. Your antitrust <laughs> mention is an amazing segue, segue. Here we go. Into our next story, which okay. is Elizabeth Warren, Senator Elizabeth Warren. Uh, tweeting who is, of course, uh, an antitruster um, or an antitrust uh, anti-capitalist, warrior. a socialist. You okay. and I probably differ on this. But let's <laughs> see. This is what people have been waiting for is to see if let's we just actually say there's been an evolution in Elizabeth Warren's positions over the years. Um, she used to be a reformer and now I'm not sure. So mm. tweeted yesterday the following with a video attached from a recent MSNBC hit saying what happens when only a handful of giant grocery store chains like Kroger dominate an industry. They can force high food prices onto Americans while raking in record profits. We need to strengthen our antitrust laws to break up giant corporations and lower prices. And let's, before we dive into taking this apart, in the hopes of at least a little more context, let's check out this 60-second clip. Remember how many grocery stores there used to be? And now what you've got is a handful of giant chains. And then what happens? Uh, Kroger, Uh, Their profits just in the third quarter of 2021 were almost $900 million. That was more than three times what their profits were in the same time period in 2019. Now, if they are able to expand profits, not expand prices, expand profits, that's because they have a lot of market dominance here. If we move in on antitrust law, break up these giant corporations, 
then we get real competition, and then we get markets that are truly competitive. That's good for small businesses. It's good for consumers. And it actually, in many cases, reduces the need for regulatory oversight. You can count on the markets doing what they need to do. I just want to start by pointing out one simple fact about the numbers that she has cited on MSNBC related to Kroger's profits, which is that in the period between 2019 and the profits that she is mentioning that were just recorded and booked, there was a pandemic. What? During which... Do you have a link to that? Any any information on this pandemic? I missed it. During which many restaurants, I don't know if you heard, were either closed or went out of business. And lots of people were buying groceries. Yes. Because they weren't eating at restaurants. Like, there's (laughs) so much wrong with this example. But that by itself is just like, I'm sorry, ma'am, aren't you an economist? Like, what She taught at Harvard, right? She's like brilliant. She's a Harvard... Like, she taught law at harvard this is a brilliant person like i'm literally just shouting this is a brilliant person and i don't understand mm. anything about this example it is such a loser yeah. that it's like undermined yeah it, you know cherry you got to be very careful things. when people cherry pick statistics <gasps> because if you cherry pick statistics and you're not actually you know looking at the big picture that's always a little bit of a tell for me like when i'm investing in companies or assessing a company if it's a good investment or not you got to be very careful cherry picking. You want to look big picture. You want to look at multiple companies. You got to look at the whole market. And Nick Kokonis, episode 1262 uh, from Alinea, tweeted exactly what your point is here. Molly, gaslighting, or does she actually believe this? Of course, grocery store profits are up. People have been eating nearly every meal at home during the pandemic, either disingenuous or lack of economic understanding or both. And he continues in a second tweet, more profits do not necessarily mean that anything is broken, that's a false mm-hmm. assumption and a bias. Basically, she's quoting a more successful business. They made 3x the profits in 2021 than 2019 as being somehow wrong. Could they just be run better? Right. They could have just uh, you know, run the business better. I looked at it, and the thing that came to mind for me immediately was I said, wait, the gro-, and then I tweeted this, wait, the grocery business is the lowest margin, fragmented, dogfight in all of capitalism. Mm-hmm. What is Center that and talking about? It's complete grandstanding, and I use the term gaslighting as well. Considering inflation is being driven by her belief in out of control spending. And, you know, like that's my belief that she's really into out of control spending. Some people might say it's appropriate spending. We could have that debate. But I just did a basic chart. I just did a search and hit Google images of like grocery store market share. Mm-hmm. Sam's Club Walmart uh, has 21%. And this is a little bit older. I think it's a 2019 chart. Kroger, 10%. Costco, 5%. Albertsons, 4.9%. Yada, yada, yada. It's an incredibly fragmented market. It's incredibly fragmented. Like there are, I, when I attempted to find a benefit of the doubt here, I thought to myself, okay, in America, something like 13 million people live in food deserts where there is only one option to buy stores. Okay, sure. And so I thought to myself, if in fact, that's what uh, she's talking about, and you only have one option for a store, and most of the locals have probably been driven out, right? And frankly, this chart, accurately represents that in most of those places where there's a food desert, the option is Walmart. So if Walmart does raise prices, you are essentially a captive audience. So I thought, okay, well, maybe this is about that. Um, But it does not appear to be necessarily, right? And I wonder how much She didn't say it was about Walmart. She didn't say it was about food deserts, and she didn't say it was about Walmart. And those are real things, but those are real things that, that that are like so systemic and structural and economic that yes. to pin it on the the sheer size of a grocery chain is 
weird and fundamentally inaccurate. Then I, I was like, well, some of that must be ameliorated by the ability to order groceries online. And I understand that there is a digital divide and broadband inequities, but none of that would account for like the sheer sort of blanketness of this statement that if like, that somehow, <laughs> somehow consolidation and Kroger being profitable is like just fundamentally all by itself wrong. Now I will say that reported uh, yesterday was that Walmart and Kroger hiked the price of COVID tests after Ugh. the federal agreement to sell them at cost expired. So it's Damn possible it. that she was talking about that because that is indeed some like, well, that's just straight shitty, up pretty shitty. That is grifting and corruption at the highest levels. Yes. Democrats, Republicans, and everybody in between are all paid off by, you know, these pharmaceutical companies and, and healthcare companies. And the fact that we have like, we don't have 80 tests available for five to $10 each is ridiculous. We talked about this on a previous episode. Yeah. And you know, I, one of the things so that she's that. leaving like, out here is do crappy things, but this is just such a like poorly articulated number or yeah. that one example is so is missing so many contextual points that I, I just am like, I'm sorry that undermines she seems to be argument. making her thing. Cause remember she attacked Elon and he's like, but I paid more taxes than anybody than the history of the country so i mean that's true and also tax rate this is an, and also an tax and. rates yeah could that's be could go up in different places exactly yep. so i think one of the problems with the way people are sparring mm -hmm. is intellectually dishonest and it's becoming so intellectually dishonest and the and the arguments are so poorly framed that they're doing themselves an incredible disservice if you really want to be um uh, you know, a woman of the people, a man of the people, uh, you know, and represent folks, make a better argument. Go ahead and find the prices that have gone up, make a list of the prices that have gone up and do the work. Find those places where there's a drought and let's shame Kroger if they in fact should be shamed right. because milk went up a dollar in these regions where they have a monopoly and it's cheaper in these regions where they're competitive. And if that's actually happening- then you would have everybody rallying behind you because that's straight up bullshit. Like if you've got a monopoly in Kansas City and there's a food drought and in Brooklyn, you can't because there's too many options yep. and you're, you made it a dollar more expensive. But one of the also things that I thought was crazy, uh, Molly, is when you have big companies come in, Walmart and Amazon and Kroger, their entire business model is to drive prices down. Mm -hmm. That is the business model, whether it's Amazon basics or their house brands. And I think the problem we have in the United States is food is so cheap, especially um, bad food, that we have an obesity problem. Right. So, like, I, it feels like this person is trying to make a grandstanding argument, but there, does she have nobody on her team? Like, our three producers, who are all under the age of 30, can take apart a senator, Senator Karen's argument in 10 seconds. Mm -hmm. Like, who's working on her team? Who are her producers that they can't make a better argument for her? I don't know. And point the you gun only, at the right I, person. Yep. You only have to look as far as, as let's say, the beef industry, where yeah. beef prices are, in fact, super, super high for consumers and ranchers are going out of business because they only have two suppliers mm -hmm. to sell to. And the yeah. suppliers are like, we will settle that, right? Like, there are many concrete instances of consolidation hurting consumers. This is not one of them. And then uh, what happens is that it starts to just become this like yeah. ideological extremes. And you have all of these people who are like, I just want you to make some sense. 
because when you there's, stop oh, making Molly sense, cursing, uh -oh. I'm so sorry. Can't wife. do that on public radio. Uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I just it's can't. I just great, cannot. Isn't it? I just it's great. great. <laughs> you made a good choice. I think you made I a good career choice word. for you. I really think I'm going to love this job. I already do. I, I am so happy for your career choice. I'm also happy that at some point I can take a fucking vacation. <laughs> <laughs> and I can leave the show with you yeah. and it'll be fine. It's true. I just love the fact that people love you. I am Aww. getting so many Molly. I just want to tell you what a great decision you made. What a great decision I made. It took two years for us to, to make this happen. Um, but the reviews I'm getting from people, they're like, Jake Cow, you're better with Molly. Aww. And it's the show's better. You're better. I, I I can't wait for the next episode. People, the reviews have been universal. I've got one negative review. That's so great. Honestly, Only one. Like, I really, I have this theory that your life is in a lot of ways defined in part by the people who follow through. Mm. And for me, you're one of those people. Like, you will be a hinge person in my life mm. because Aww. this conversation has gone for so long and you have given me this opportunity to like, make a massive pivot in my life and my career. Yeah. And it already is like so fun and so yeah. great. And we're climbing in the rankings. The show quality is good. And we're seven, eight episodes in. And a uh, big announcement today. I forgot to tell you about this, Molly, but I, 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 since I've been getting good at getting talent on the show, big announcement, Nick, uh, we have our third co-host slash contributor before we go to seven days. You guys want to know who it is? <gasps> I just got off the phone and uh, Lex Friedman will be joining us full time. And being a venture capitalist, <laughs> it's oh true. God. It's true. I got him. I got him. He's joining the. I'm joking. I'm joking. Lex Friedman is not joining the team. Jesus. I'm like, what? And you bought <laughs> a plane? That would be the cool I can't keep up. <laughs> Can you imagine if I got Lex Friedman on this train? Hey, stinker. Lex, would you like to be a venture capitalist? <laughs> Look at the audience. It's hilarious. <sighs> I know. <laughs> everybody's like, no like <sighs> I got you all. I got you. I mean, it's obviously a joke. Uh, but who? I mean, as a thought exercise, mm -hmm. who would be a great third person to bring into this mix? If we could, if we did have a third person who went to seven days a week, who would be a third person? I know a lot of people say Alex Wilhelm uh, from TechCrunch. Oh, yeah, I do like him. He's mm -hmm. pretty solid. You three have done an episode before. We have. It was a great episode. It was a great episode. Oh, yeah. You know what's good about him, too, is he's, he's particularly, I mean, I don't want to publicly recruit people, but um, <laughs> sure, why not? Um, you know, he is very analytical. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, like he dig he, one of his things is digging into those S ones. He does the S one breakdowns for TechCrunch. I, mean, I do so, love those. Like he's awesome because he's the anchor great. of TechCrunch's premium product. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. And he did Crunchbase. So as a data guy, like he's a super data nerd, and he really cares about business model. That translates incredibly well into being a venture capitalist. Mm -hmm. And like I think this fifty fifty thing because when you're a media person, you can't give it up. You can't give it like, up. It's a addiction you know you're like hey you know you've been drinking booze for 30 years want to give it up it's like not really i <laughs> <laughs> don't like my wine I like, whatever i like the idea too that being a media person is basically as long-term toxic and like, basically is, like being an alcoholic it is a straight-up addiction but also it's such a great i mean this show is such a secret weapon because even if you can't invest in something you can evangelize it you can sure. still like see the amber ecosystem amber mugs like yeah. mainstream climate tech, right? That's yep. solutions oriented and not depressing and not like all synthetic biology. You can start to create a value proposition mm -hmm. with the media side, even if you can't write a check to something. Oh, well, so here's an interesting observation from one of our folks in the chat room. 
they were just basically saying, uh, doing proper predictions about Prof G is the reverse J-Cal. Hey, here's a great idea. If somebody as a super fan wants to do a supercut of my incredible predictions and then supercut them with Prof G's terrible ones, that would be pretty hilarious. Um, I'm not saying that I would like send you like a thousand dollars in ETH or Bitcoin from a anonymous wallet in the Philippines if you did that. I'm not saying an anonymous saying wallet in the Philippines wouldn't send you a thousand dollars in ETH maybe. if you did. Uh, all right, so uh, we're doing season six of Angel. It's its its own feed, and we also publish it here on This Week in Startups. It's just basically, I've been interviewing investors. I Hopefully, you can get in on this too. Maybe you do one of the interviews or two of them. We do them together. But you know, uh, for the last couple of seasons, I've been coming up with themes. The theme for this year, Molly, or the season, season six of 10 episodes, is first-time fund managers. So you got your first fund. Typically, those are 10 to 20 million. I want to talk to first-time fund managers because there's so many first-time fund managers now because it's so easy to raise a fund, rolling funds on AngelList, you know, popping up a fund on Assure, which we're investors in. Uh, I think Carta has tools to pop up funds. My friend Adeo is doing a VC lab where you, people are learning how to be venture capitalists. Everybody's learning how to be VCs, like yourself, Molly. Mm -hmm. So this season, season six, will be first-time fund managers. And we're starting with Mac, the VC. Yeah, so anyway, awesome. enjoy this interview, kicking off season six of Angel. These days, it can be hard to find and hire the right candidate for your small business. Don't I know it? Constantly trying to hire talent, and that's why LinkedIn Jobs makes it so much easier. You can find the people you want fast and now free. When you create a free job post on LinkedIn, it takes just minutes, and you can create and reach the world's largest professional network of over 770 million members. Wow, they're growing fast over there. You can use screening questions to get your role in front of only the most qualified candidates. I love screening questions. And you can utilize simple tools on LinkedIn jobs to quickly filter and prioritize who you want to interview and hire. Very important to prioritize. Sometimes you get too many people who want the same job, right? And this is why small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus their leading competitors. We love it. We find great people there. We trust the service and it's so easy. It keeps us nice and organized. I mean, we've literally hired dozens of people using LinkedIn. LinkedIn jobs will help you find the candidates you want to talk to and they're going to do it faster because speed is what it's all about for startups. You know that. Did you know that every week nearly 40 million job seekers visit LinkedIn? I bet you didn't know that. 40 million people somewhere in there is the next superstar who's going to take your company to the next level. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to post your first free job. That's right. The first job posting is free at linkedin.com slash angel, A-N-G-E-L. That's right, linkedin.com slash angel to post your first job for free. Terms and conditions do apply because we're giving you something for free. Hey, everybody, I'm super excited. It's season six of Angel. Can you believe it's been six seasons since I wrote the book, Angel? We started this special series, special podcast as part of this week in startups so that you could learn from other investors, what their theses are, how they invest, why they invest, their best practices, you know, and just basically figure out maybe some strategies for being better investors. Now, if you're a founder and you're listening to this, you get to understand how the other people uh, involved in the startup community, the people on the other side of the table, are thinking about their job and their role. So uh, congratulations on being sneaky and sneaking in here and understanding how uh, to get that money and secure the bag. You know, we started this in 2017, as I mentioned, to complement the book Angel, and we've uh, started to theme the seasons. You may remember, and I think we started the themes around season four. Season's four theme was the three comma club. So basically, 
people with under a billion dollars in management. So we had Dan Rose from KOTU or Sarah Cannon uh, from Index, Sarah Tavel from Benchmark, just people with massive exits or massive funds. Season five, we did super angels and we had on angel investors who had done 50 investments or more. Mark Cuban, Gotham Gal, Joanne Wilson, Elad Gill, basically people who've placed a lot of bets. Now, season six, I realized, you know, there is this huge trend. Many more people are starting funds. And so we thought we'd go with first time funds as the season's theme. Basically, new fund managers. And some of them had a little experience before, of course, but they've, generally speaking, the theme will be people who have raised a first fund and they're, you know, under a new moniker, they got a new brand name, and they're deploying capital and hopefully building a brand that lasts for decades to come as investors. So uh, our first guest will be none other than Mac Conwell. You know him uh, as Mac the VC on the Twitter. He's very popular, uh, interacts with a ton of people, and uh, his fund is called Rare Breed VC. He's a two-time founder. And he started raising a fund in September of 2020. And he uh, has been doing for us over at Inside, the Inside Business Podcast with Liam Gill, uh, 36 episodes in. And we're changing it up a little bit, bringing some more of the analysts in. Uh, but he's been in my orbit. And this is the first time we're sitting down and talking together. He's closed $10 million, uh, in October of 2021, deployed $4.9 million since January of 2021. And their check sizes are very similar to my first fund, 100 k to 250 uh, and we'll get into some of the great companies in his portfolio in a moment. But for now, welcome, finally, Mac, the VC. Thank you, Jason. I truly appreciate it. Um, it's kind of weird and surreal to be talking to you right now because you okay. don't know this. Okay. But this week in startups has been around for a long time. And when I, I started my first company in 2010, I didn't really start to learn about the industry and really pick up things until 2012. Mm. And I found this little YouTube show called This Week in Startups. <laughs> and uh, the amount of things I learned watching some of those episodes, like I have to credit part of my journey to. So oh, wow. thank you for that. And thank you for all the stuff that all the content you put out and all the education. Because, you know, it's a, it's a black guy in Baltimore. Like there were so many places for me to go to find that information back then. Yeah. Um, so thank you. Uh, well, it's uh, it's very nice of you to say. And I always said, you know, as I was coming into the industry into the 90s and I was a bit of an outsider, uh, maybe not as much as you are, but white kid from Brooklyn with a 71 year average who went to Fordham at night fixing laser printers. Uh, so maybe my starting line was slightly ahead of yours, uh, but it wasn't MIT or Stanford. That's for sure. I said, you know, if I ever make it, I'd love to you know, throw a ladder down behind me and show some other people how I got in. And I did make it. And, um, you know, I started the launch festival and a lot of these events, which had free tickets, you know, and, and the podcast was, you know, for two reasons, one to talk to my friends every week and learn something from them. Uh, but also to just crack the industry open and say, Hey, listen, anybody who can get to YouTube or a podcast player, you know, here's Evan Williams who built blogger and Twitter. Here's, this kid, Kevin, who's making Instagram, here's Chris Saka and Brian Alvey and whoever else, Matt Mullenweg, and let's just have a conversation. And it, it really is amazing how consistency in publishing has led so many people. I, I meet so many founders and they'll say the same thing to me. This is surreal for me to be on the program because I grew up on it because we're in year 11. Um, and, it, and it's just, that's really means a lot to me. So thanks for saying it. Absolutely. Uh, and I get it a lot. So tell me, how did you get the idea that you would go into venture capital? 
And of course, you know, we hear over and over again, this industry is impossible to break into. Venture capital is the hardest job to get. And when I came into the industry, you had to be somebody's fraternity brother, Harvard, Wharton, or Stanford, MBA, even have a shot of maybe getting in as an associate, seems to have cracked wide open in the last decade. How did you get the idea that you wanted to be in venture? And how did you start that journey? Yeah, so I got the idea to be in venture by being an arrogant founder, like most founders, right? right? Once you start raising capital, every founder who's gone through the process of raising capital has had the thought of, I could do this. I could pick yeah. companies. I could be an investor. Not really true. It's a lot harder than you think it is. But, yeah. you know, in those moments, you start to have those thoughts. Um, but I never had like a, a direct path. So, you know, I had two companies. One, the first one, we sold the IP to a Fortune 100 company. The second one failed. And then I ended up being head of technology at a marketing firm. Um, and I was also a college dropout and engineer before that. So not a, a VC path. <laughs> um, and then the marketing firm I was working for got a client I didn't agree with ethically. So I quit. Quit on a Friday. On principle, didn't have any plans. Didn't know what I was going to do next. And the very next Monday, um, an economic development firm in the state of Maryland that does investments on behalf of the state put out this you know, community-wide email saying they were looking for a, a fund manager, a new fund manager. Mm-hmm. And again, I was arrogant enough to believe that with no finance background, no college degree, that I could get that job. Mm. Um, I had no clue like how prestigious or like how many people were going for that job that were far mm. more qualified than I was. Um, but four and a half months later, they picked me and put me on their seed investment team. And I spent four years there and I did a lot of cool things. And that's kind of how I got started. So I got started from an email. Wow. And so a couple of lucky breaks. You get that job uh, in, uh, we said it was Baltimore. Yeah. In Maryland, it's for the oh, sorry, state Maryland, of Maryland. Yeah. State of Maryland. Uh, but then at some point you decide, you know what, I need my own fund. And that was, I think, last year or the year before you started that process of trying to raise it. You yep. did it very publicly on Twitter. That's how you and I sort of became aware of each other. Yep. Explain this process of, again, back to the arrogance or the confidence or the boldness, whatever, you know, um, Arrogance and being bold and being risk-taking, you know, could be two sides of the same coin. So you start seeing other people raising funds or maybe rolling funds on AngelList. What gave you the inspiration? Maybe syndicates. What gave you the inspiration to start your own fund? And how did you start that process? So the inspiration to start the fund came from two founders, right? The first one is a black woman in Baltimore who wanted to build a tumble dryer that could dry a wig or hair extension in 15 minutes with no heat, right? Um, Really unique idea, super interesting market, zero innovation. Tried for three years to help her. She got nothing but no's. And so the way she decided to get capital was she became a surrogate mother. She gave birth to twins to raise capital so she could start building her first prototype. Wow. And I got frustrated with the industry because I couldn't think of a fund that could have worked at and made that investment. But here's a woman building a product in the industry that hadn't had innovation in our lifetime. That's a $10 billion market. And nobody could see the opportunity when she was building. Mm. And so I knew if I was ever going to invest in founders like her, I would have to do it myself. Um, and for context, at the time, working for the state of Maryland, I actually started a pre-seed fund specifically for underestimated founders to basically try to institutionalize the friends and family round to get them that really early capital. And I still couldn't fund her through that because our deal flow was so hot. And I was trying to explain to my team, like, hey, the next cool B2B SaaS company's great, but this is different. Mm. And nobody was hearing me. So like, at, that was the moment I knew I was going to have to do my own thing at some point. And then fast forward to 2020, COVID happens, um, George Floyd happened. So I, I, I tweet some stuff about George Floyd, I had to get off my head. And then I just stay consistent. 
started meeting founders. And I met this founder in Dallas, Texas, uh, a gentleman by the name of Roberto running a company called RoboAmp. Um, B2B SaaS company helps make websites faster. You know, he was doing decent um, monthly recurring revenue. The guy's been coding since he was seven, had the chops. Nobody was looking to invest in him because he was a Latin guy in Texas. So I was like, all right, I can put a SPV together. And I know some folks who like this space and get him some money, try to help him out. And one of my mentors said, look, I love this company, but I don't want to invest in this one company. I want to invest in every company that you find. So here's 250000 go raise a fund. Wow. I was, like, I was like, that's cool, but there's COVID, George Floyd, the world's crazy. I'm not, you know, now's not the time for me to do this. And he's like, no, you've been talking about this for two years. You need to just go do it. So I'm like, all right, I'll go do it. Wow. So you were meeting with founders and then trying to advocate for them, trying to pass the hat and maybe get an SPV going. And then finally, one of the people who is investing alongside you says, hey, I'll be your anchor. Here's 250. Go raise the rest. And then you decide you're going to do 506C, publicly raise, talk about it on Twitter. Something that when I started in the game 11 years ago, the uh, lawyers were like, you cannot ever talk about raising a fund. And then all of a sudden, people are like, but you kind of can. Uh, and that advice changed dramatically. So 506C means you're going to publicly raise your fund. If you do that, you're required to make sure that people are accredited. You've got to get proof. They can't just what's called self-certify. They can't just say, I'm accredited. And you say, okay, I'll take your word for it because um, we're doing it privately. If it's a public solicitation, I'm raising a fund. You have to do 506C. And so you figured out how to do that. And then what? Checks start coming in, you know, 50K, 100K just from talking to people on Twitter? So originally I was going to do just a traditional fund. And then a friend of mine, Kate Broderick from the W Fund, tells me about this thing called a rolling fund. Mm. Angelist is doing these rolling funds. I'm like, oh, that sounds really cool. Then the big draw to rolling funds was you could publicly solicit. I'm like, well, that's amazing. Yep. I'm starting to build on Twitter. I want to be able to tweet about this. Let me learn more. Well, yep. found out I didn't like the way rolling funds were structured. Talk about that. But I didn't like this 506C thing. So I talked to a lawyer. He was like, yeah, you could do that. Anybody can do it. It's just a designation. And I was like, for real? He was like, yeah. I was like, well, that's what we're going to do. Um, and so that's where that idea came from. But the way the check started was I didn't know how to raise a fund. Like mm. I know how to raise, I knew how to raise money as an entrepreneur. I knew how to be an investor. I didn't know how to raise from LPs, right? Mm. And I didn't have a network of LPs. So after I got the $250 check, my personal network got me to about 400K. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> the goal is 10 million. 4% of the way there. <laughs> yes. So like the goal is 10 million. And so my all, my thought was always if I if you gave me eighteen to twenty four months, mm. I could meet enough people and learn enough along the way. I could figure it out, mm. but it was going to take me time. But what happened was, you know, I mentioned I've been tweet. I started tweeting in uh, like around June of twenty twenty, and as I'm tweeting and tweeting, I'm noticing more people are following me. I know it's more VCs are following me. So I'm like, if I see a VC follow me, I'm gonna send them a message to have a meeting because I need to learn. I need mm. to learn how to raise. Them. And so I started meeting folks, started meeting folks. And then I had this meeting very early on with Elizabeth Yen from Hustle Fund. And it's so her first call. We're talking. I'm telling her about it. And in my mind, I set up. I knew I was going to raise $10 million. And so I knew if I raised $10 million or less, I could raise from 249 LPs. Hmm. And so I already knew that. And so I started off with a 10K minimum. I said, well, let me just start off small and just see if I get the ball rolling here. So I'm having this talk with Elizabeth and I'm, I'm telling her about what I'm doing. And she's like, that's interesting. She's like, what's your minimum? I was at 10K. And she's like, I think I could do that. Mm. And it was this light bulb moment of, oh, mm. if I talk to more GPs, 
GPs ah. can invest in funds too. And that became my strategy. And so from- Such a great strategy. I mean, it's literally the strategy uh, that Mark Andreessen deployed, which was, I am going to put 50K into every emerging fund manager. He did it in my first fund famously. And uh, that'll hopefully blow back to him in maybe as a feeder. So she gave you the 10K hoping, hey, maybe- yeah. He returns me back 40K, I make a little bit of money or 50K, whatever, a two, three, four, five X fund. But what if he sends me the next Uber or the next Airbnb? That would make it worthwhile as well. So what a great strategy emerge emerges. Yeah. Two things you said that I want to follow up on. Mm -hmm. You said, one, investing is harder than it seems. Uh, and then two, you said you didn't like rolling funds. So let's go through those two questions. Yeah, absolutely. But one thing I do want to oh, yeah. put a pin on. So after the, my meeting with Elizabeth, that set off this this thing where from the middle of June 2020 to the middle of September, I had over 1,100 meetings. And those I'm 1, sorry. 1,100 meetings. Yes. Uh, if those were 30 minutes each, yes. that's like 550 hours, 550 yes. hours, 10 hours a day. It's like 50 days of 10 hours a day meetings. That is bonkers. Yes. That's, that's awesome. What is your, was that like million. seven days a week? Just... 30, 20, 30 minute meetings and calendarly, just stacking them all up. Yeah. I mean, at the height of that, I was averaging 25 to 28 meetings a day. And then I would do like five to 10 meetings on weekends. So pure hustle, just pure, pure hustle. hustle. That's how I you know, I'll talk to anybody who will pick up the phone. I love it. I mean, it's such a great strategy. In the early days when I was doing my magazine, Silicon Eye Reporter, I was like, I, I just, I don't know anybody. I'm 24 years old in New York. And I would be like, is anybody doing anything on the internet or whatever? Do you know anybody? And they'd be like, yeah, I know like three people doing stuff with the internet or CD-ROMs. I was like, can you introduce me? Can I get their phone numbers? And I would just say, hey, we should meet. And I would just do the same thing you did. I would go to Grammar, except I did in person, Gramercy Tavern. I would just meet people for coffee. And I would say, I got another meeting coming. You want to meet them? And I'd have them sit and roll over meetings, but just pure hustle. And it's not about how many no's you get. It's about just getting a couple of yeses. So I have those 1,100. How many LPs do you wind up having in your fund? Out of that 1100, I think I got about like 35, 40 LPs that, that okay. jumpstarted. And, you know, today I have over 200. Um, so one in, basically one in 20. One so, in 20, yeah, about one a day. <laughs> so basically you get 19 no's, one yes. And that emboldens you to say, well, this sucks. It's not efficient, but it's working. So why stop? That's exactly what it was. That's 100% yeah. what it was. And the average person's putting in 25K, I'm guessing. And so it, said another way, that was mostly 10 K checks. Okay. But let's pause for a second here. If you do, if you're doing 20 meetings in a day, or let's say you even did two days and you hit 10 K every day, every other day, that's pretty good. Yeah. That's, you know, as crazy as it sounds, but what's important for people to notice, uh, to note here is that it is a numbers game. And even an outsider who's going to have a much lower hit rate, like your hit rate when you're in year 10 will be one out of three, one out of five. Right. But when you started, it was one out of 25. Okay, that sucks, it's inefficient, but you still got it done through the law of big numbers. It's such a great strategy, which is, I'm just gonna flood the zone, I'll just do these meetings until I, I hit some critical mass. And then of course, if you get to 40, 50 LPs and you're at three, four million, I'm assuming then some bigger checks come in yeah. or it gets easier. That's when the bigger checks come in, that's when it gets easier and then, that was coinciding with my my following on Twitter growing. So like mm. now my Twitter followers growing. Now I've had touch points with a bunch of people in the ecosystem. So not only are they following me on Twitter, they know a little bit about me. 
And then next thing you know, the momentum starts picking up and bigger checks start coming in. So that, that worked out really well. All right. Uh, let's go to this question. Yeah, yeah. So, Why is investing harder than it seems? Because everybody thinks it's just, you're investing in just cool companies, just cool products, right? There's so much more that goes into it, right? You know, the market size, the team. People don't understand like how many versions of the same product I'm going to see time and time and time again, mm. right? Like, I am so happy that the fellas from Squire are the company that is crushing it. I met like well over 80 other barbershop apps, right? All there are a the- lot of barbershop apps and salon apps even more. Yes. And like, it's like, I've heard the same pitch a bunch of times. And you're going to tell me how great it is, how amazing it is. And it's like, yeah, maybe. Yeah. Right? But, but then, you know, also you got to do the math. You got to do the digging. You know, you're really good at, you know, ta- like tabletop math, right? As the company's talking, being able to start really m- putting down like, okay, how much is their burn? You know, yep. how Back much is the envelope? Cat? Yep. All yep. that kind of stuff. And you, and you got to be proficient in it. Right. Because you can't get caught up in a founder like myself was really good at storytelling. They tell you this amazing story that gets you all hyped up, but the numbers aren't there. Yeah. Right. That's 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 a trap. That's a, that's an easy trap. It's to a, fall you into. know, I always tell people there when they get excited, I'm like, do not in- commit in the room because let me tell you, founders uh, self-select for incredibly charismatic individuals and then they get rewarded for being charismatic. So they refine and sharpen that skill and they get, you know, they're doing the 1100 meetings as well. Maybe my, you know, my many founders I work with are doing two or 300 meetings. They're not doing 1100. If they did 1100, I think they all clear market because at least after the first couple of hundred no's or very few yeses, you're going to get a lot of good feedback as to why you're getting the no's and you can get smarter and refine your product. But it does take a lot and they are charismatic. So you're going to have to let the reality distortion field kind of dissipate and then all that's left is a fact who are the customers how many are there how much are they paying what's the margin what's the unit economics and so, and kind of really refine and actually i had squire ceo sanj is that his name sanj laron yeah uh, on episode 1131 and that was really impressive um and he's doing great so you did like rolling funds right. for people who don't know rolling funds are quarterly I think it's quarterly commits and mm-hmm. then people you get bundled into. It's a very innovative concept. What didn't you like about this? Why wasn't that right like, for you? I didn't like the way they did LP returns, right? Mm-hmm. So I knew early on that some of my earliest LPs were going to be true supporters and people who have followed my journey for the last decade from the time I was an entrepreneur to now. And, you know, they're going to do 10K, 20K checks. And so if I put that in the rolling fund, the most they could do is four quarters. Mm-hmm. Well, if I find my best company in, Q- in quarter six, Mm-hmm. They don't get any of those returns. So yep. if you're going to be my first backers and my first funds, I need you to get access to the best companies I do out of that portfolio. And so for me, that was just a, that was a non-starter. Right? And you so wrote a blog post, Lions, mm-hmm. Tigers, and Rolling Funds, oh my, why we ultimately decided to not do one. I kind of like that reasoning. Um, it's, it, it's against the interest of the LP because they might, if they just happen to miss a payment or they just said, oh, I'm taking a quarter off or they were like, oh, they put up this... None of these companies have worked the first four quarters. I'm taking off the fifth and sixth. And that's when you hit your Uber or Robinhood or Calm. Now it's like, ah, yeah. And I have people who are in my life who have done that as well. Uh, All right. Let me ask you a question. Mm -hmm. You mentioned earlier you're a black man from Baltimore. Correct. Uh, So I can confirm that you're a black man uh, from Baltimore. Uh, 
as a white guy from Brooklyn, let's just be honest about this. Everybody says the industry is a bit racist, biased. The dollars don't go to uh, a perfect distribution of, let's say, the uh, demographics of America. Far from it, perhaps. Uh, and then you have, you know, incredibly horrible moments of uh, random racism, bigotry, sexism, et cetera, in our industry or any industry. Right. Uh, but you got it done. Mm -hmm. So what is your take on where the industry is in 2022 in terms of equity, equality, whatever, just the ability for a black guy to raise a $10 million fund? Because you did it. But I guess maybe if you were a white guy from Stanford, it'd be a little bit easier. I don't think we would, either of us would argue with that, but you yeah. did it nonetheless. So how do you feel about the industry, it's, uh, candidly? There's, there's, a, there's still a lot left to be desired in the industry, right? Like, it's still hard, right? And, and you know, I had some factors working for me as I, as I moved into raising my fund, and a part of that was, so here's the weird thing about I raise, how I raise my fund, right? So like 80% of my LPs came from interactions on Twitter. Thank you for 506C and the Jobs Act. Cool. Here's the other two things that happened. Um, COVID. So everybody's stuck in their house. So I don't have to pay for travel. So I oh. can do all my meetings on Zoom. Right. And then two, George Floyd happened. So then there were a bunch of diversity initiatives from LPs, especially ah. corporates. And so there was a lot of diversity initiatives that aren't doing any more <laughs> investing. Yeah. They, they did their initiative and it's gone. I just happened to be in that time frame. One of the interesting things about when I raised my fund was when I quit my job working for the state of Maryland to go start the fund, I had less than five grand in, the bank, in my bank account. Hmm. Right? Like that is not something That's you not do. not a lot of roadway. <laughs> like, 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 you know, I don't have a GP commit because I couldn't afford one. Mm -hmm. Right? Yep. Like, I got here. Explain to people what the GP commit is and why yeah. that's actually a bit of a hurdle for folks. So your GP commit is anywhere from one to five percent of the fund that the the fund manager needs to put in themselves. Right. This is the same thing for you know um, when when investors talk to entrepreneurs, they ask them how much of their own money have they put in their company because they want you to have skin in the game. Right. Right. And so the idea is. Well, if you're raising a $10 million fund and you put $100,000 in, you're investing your own money as well. So you're going to be prudent with my money because you're being prudent with your own money. Right. Which, and so this is a major hurdle because if you're coming, hurdle. I mean, in your case of your fund, $10 million fund, we're talking about 100 to 500K. And, uh, you know, I had sold one of my companies when I did my first fund. I think I was two, three, four percent of the fund. So I was two, three, four hundred. Which I was like, okay, I got to, you know, I got to put up or shut up. If I'm going to be betting their money, like I got to have something in it. But I would never have been do able to do it 10 years earlier. It is a limiting factor. And that's something that in first-time funds, people should change their expectation, I think. There I should agree. be no expectation of a, of a GK commit in that first fund. Because if we want to have more diversity in this. But there also seems to be, uh, and I don't know if this is because of people's guilt slash... Uh, awakening during the murder of George Floyd. Uh, and let's be honest, it's a murder. Uh, and, yep. you know, it's tough to watch and it's tough to talk about. It's tough to talk about this issue, period. But it's important to talk about it. So we should have the dialogue. We're in the shadow of this, you know, tragedy with George Floyd's murder. And people are feeling guilty. Maybe they're having a bit of an awakening to, hey, maybe 2021, but as much as we want to believe that we're living in a post-race world or post-racism world, which is something I 
kind of believed we were trending towards. Then you see George Floyd and you're like, ah, not really. It's still pretty bad out there. Um, people, correct me if I'm wrong, were more interested in helping. And you're in this, like you said, it's a really astute point. Everybody's willing to take meetings on the phone uh, over Zoom. And before that, I was like, ah, I don't want to get on some janky software to do a teleconference. No, that's too hard. It never works. Come to Santo Road. So coming to Santo Road is going to cost you five grand. And you only got five grand of runway. So it's amazing those two confluences of random events actually wind up helping you. That's exactly what it was. Yeah. Uh, pretty also depressing that we have to see the murder of a black man in order for other black men to get the opportunity. Yeah, when, when people ask me about my career in venture, I tell them that my career in venture was sparred on by the killings of two black men, right? So the crazy part was I told you I worked at that marketing firm and I quit. Well, the week Philando Castillo got shot and killed in his car for legally having a firearm was the same week that organization started soliciting the National Rifle Association, which has a history of not uh, supporting black gun owners. And so I quit that job on a Friday. And the very next Monday, I get this email that the investment arm of the state of Maryland is hiring. So that's how I get in the VC. And then when yeah. I go to raise a fund, it's after George Floyd. So that's been you, my journey. It, it's a bit threading the needle, I'll be honest. Like you barely skated through like two, you know, really unique moments in time. But here we are. And we're seeing... A lot of other people now watching you and before you, Arlen, and before you, Elizabeth, even, uh, a woman of color, uh, you know, it's uh, we're seeing a great change occur and the tools are out there. And I think it's very interesting. The public, because of public solicitation, the public really wants to see this change. But if you wanted to see this change previously, it was all occurring, you know, in the back rooms. And now you can actually support the change you want to see in the world on Republic or Seed Invest or if somebody's just tweeting. It's actually pretty rad. I have to say, because I tweeted the other day how I was like so impressed and people took it a little bit the wrong way. I was tweeting like, God, it's yeah. like, you know, when you're like an internet celebrity, like you are now and like you can just have, you can meet LPs on Twitter. I'm so jealous that I filled up my funds with 250, you know, you have a 250 cap for people who don't know. It's just a technical thing. You can have 250 investors or 10 million, but not both of accredited investors. QPs, you can have unlimited. And I was like, ah, I don't even know if I could even do a public solicitation now because all it would do is frustrate people. And you're going to quickly be at that point. Now that you have 10 million and 250, how, you said you have 200 LPs in the fund or so? Yeah, I got 200 LPs. And you, you hit the 10 million cap. Yeah. So now you talking about raising, when you do your next fund, if you do a public solicitation and everybody from your last fund does their part or more, you're full. Yeah. That's, That's super exactly frustrating. So like there's going to be a bunch of people who are in fund one that won't be able to be in fund two because the goal for fund two is to be significantly larger. It's going to be more institutional. Mm -hmm. um, but hopefully my goal is to, to set aside a few seats for smaller checks, right? Like I want yeah. to keep access open, but the SEC rules are what they are, right? And short of us working hand to hand with SEC and lobbyists to get these rules changed for now, this is what it's going to be. And hopefully one day, you know, we help that change happen. But, you know, my goal is to be the next NEA, the next Green Spring. So mm. we're going to have to change it up a bit. Well, I mean, if you think about it, the other possibility, and I've thought about this myself, is to just make a vintage. This is Max 2021 fund. This is Max 2022 fund. And you can keep it at relatively the same size and just tell people, listen, 
It's not exactly a rolling fund, but the funds will not be three-year funds. They'll be yearly funds. And so we're just going to name the vintages based on year. And that, that's something I've been thinking about as well. Are, is your fund and your thesis to invest in the greatest companies in the world, or are you trying to back specifically underrepresented founders? Because this is another, um, you know, I think challenge everybody expects because you're a black man. Okay, you're going to back all black men or, or black women and just you, you're going to be going for the underdogs, the underrepresented. But then that means you're narrowing the number of people you would invest in to a smaller group of people, which means it could impact your returns, which means it could impact your ability to do other funds. And I had this conversation with Arlen. She's like, listen, I'm doing black women. That's it. You know, underrepresented women. And I was like, well, what if you meet a white guy with a great idea? I was like, go find another fund. There's plenty of funds for you. And I was like, well, what if that white guy happens to have the best returns? And she's like, well, I'll figure it out. And I was like, okay, what's your take on that? Because you could be muting your returns if you limit yourself to just a subset of people. Look, I completely respect folks like Overlooked, Backstage, Harlem yep. Capital, Collab. Like, I love all those folks. And all of those folks are my friends. I do not have a diversity mandate, right? Okay. I invest in companies primarily outside of the major tech hubs, outside of Silicon Valley, New York, and Massachusetts, pre-seed to seed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's, that's pretty much it. Uh, you know, that, that's, that's pretty much where I am. Because, like, my job fundamentally as an investor is I am nothing more than a glorified financial advisor. Mm-hmm. Wealthy people or people of means give me their money to make them more money. That is my job, and that is how I'm benchmarked. So if I was to ever meet a young kid by the name of Mark Zuckerberg who was telling he's building something crazy called the Facebook, it is literally my job to give him money. And if I don't, my LPs are going to look at me like, oh, what the hell is wrong with you? Right. And so for me, I'm looking to back the best best companies possible. You know what? And that's what Henry from Harlan Capital was on this week in Startups episode 1183. And he was saying something very similar, which is like, Listen, we're in the business of taking this amount of capital and Xing it, whether it's three, four, five, six, seven, hopefully 10x, whatever it takes. And so you can still have that focus, but you can still be opportunistic and back a great founder. I think it's smart. There's no reason to handicap your returns uh, potentially by walking away from some great founder who happens to stumble into your office, you know, or into your line of sight. One of my favorite founders is a gentleman by the name of Charles who runs a company called Beauty by Me out of uh, Tennessee, out of Memphis, Tennessee. Mm. You know, he's, he's a 25-year-old white guy who, out of Memphis, is just as much as an underdog as me as a black guy coming out of Baltimore. Yeah. You know. Well, Hotbed I mean, of startups, relatively. Memphis. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Barbecue, know, yeah. Music, yeah. <laughs> startups, not so many. You know, he's got an incredible company that's yeah. going to disrupt the beauty industry, right? And like, I'm, I am honored to support a founder like that. What categories do you like to invest in? Because I noticed that uh, a lot of folks who are new to getting into VC, maybe a lot of D2C products or non-traditional, you mentioned one with hair weaves and, and getting them dry. A lot of these businesses maybe aren't software, so they don't have the same margins. They're not marketplaces, they're not SaaS, and they're not consumer subscription, or they're not fintech. Those four, obviously are like blow the doors off returns. And then D2C, which I've done plenty of D2C companies, also very hard, hardware very hard. And sometimes we see people who are new to entrepreneurship 
lean towards non-scalable businesses, and that's a constant struggle. First-time founders always pick something non-scalable. Second time, they're like, okay, I'm not going to do something scalable this time. I'm not doing hardware. I'm going to use somebody else's hardware. So how do you, what do you like to invest in? Do you have specific categories that uh, you see overperforming? We've done a bit of beauty and fintech, but at the end of the day, the way I think about it is quality deals. Like, I don't necessarily care about like I like I need to care about valuations and stuff like that. But I got to tell you, though, the one investment that we made that I helped that my LPs love the most is an investment in Main Street. Right. Like we got to invest in Main Street second round. And as you know, that was a huge round. Explain to me my, what Main Street does. Yeah. So Main Street is a company that f- helps start helps startups and companies find tax credits. Right. So they help you. F- so like if you're a company, you go to MainStreet.com, you fill out some information. And they find you free money. Like that's literally about their business models to find you free money, right? Um, the company is one of the fastest growing companies I've ever seen. The founder Doug is one of the most impressive founders I've ever met. It is the most Silicon Valley of Silicon Valley companies you could ever see. And we put a very small check on the cap table at a really high valuation because that company is going to be a winner. And I. I I always go back to it because like one of my uh, mentors loves to tell the story of how he met this company that was that he really liked and thought the founder was great, but it had a six hundred million dollar valuation. He thought it was too high. That company was Uber. Yeah. Yeah. Th- I mean, Shervin famously did the Series B at three hundred or something and people thought he was crazy and it worked out, right? Yeah. So. Yeah. So like the way I think about it is I'm I don't think about industries or anything like that. I think about quality of deal and business fundamentals, right? If you show me that you know how to find customers, customers buy your product, they keep coming back, you got good margins and you're in a large market, you probably got a shot to win. I don't need to necessarily know all the other ins and outs because that's how I help take my own biases out of it, right? And that's how if I ever meet a company like Spex, you do that deal, right? Like I don't know much about hosiery, but I see these numbers and I see women keep coming back and I see it growing. And there are a lot of women in the world who wear hosiery. Oh, let's give that a shot. Like, yep. like, that's what I'm always going after. That's what I'm always trying to do. Amazing. Uh, and uh, shout out to MainStreet.us slash twist. Get 25% off. They've been a sponsor of this program, in fact. Uh, good for them. Priority on morning, yada, yada. Uh, you have strong feelings about investor updates like I do. What have you learned about investor updates? Not all of them are good. Not all yep. of them are quality. Um, mm-hmm. Too many founders. Are trying to hold back or hide things, right? Like, mm-hmm. tell me your numbers. Tell me, tell me how you're doing your bank account. Like, if I've given you a check, tell me how much money you got in your bank account when you give me updates. Yeah. Right? Like, show me what's really going on because all I'm going to do, because a lot of founders just send you an email and just tell you all the great things, all the conversations we're having. Thank you, all the people who helped. And oh, by the way, we, we missed one deadline, but we explained it away. It's not that big of a deal. Right. Like, no, be honest and real with me because the, the more honest you are with me, the more I can help, right. the more you hold back, the harder it is for when things actually get really hard for me to be like, well, why didn't you really explain this in that last update? Like I read the update. I sent you an email, said, good luck and good job. Keep going at it. Let's catch up soon. And yeah. then I had to chase you down to catch up. And then when I get there and I ask you about the numbers, then I add no. Like, yeah. let, let's stop doing that, founders, please. Like <laughs> the more you give us, the more we can help. I mean, it's amazing sometimes founders lead and they fill these long, they don't send updates, then they send a really long update, then you get the long update and you're like, okay, here's a bunch of conversations that they had. Okay, well, what do those conversations actually result in? Uh, Where are the customers? 
Where are the usage stats? Where's the revenue? Where's the runway? What did you burn? Let's get some bearing on, hey, if this is an airplane, what's our altitude? How much fuel do we have? Where are we landing the plane? How many passengers are on it? Like, let's get some data about how this plane is flying before we talk about how great like the cocktail service and peanuts were. Like, yeah, we get it. The peanuts were warm. Great. <laughs> Let, let's get some reality in the business. And that's where like all of these soft metrics. Oh, we spoke at this conference. Oh, we won the startup award. I'm just like, I, I, I will tell my founders because I'm super candid and, and that's kind of my brand. I'm like, every time you put in a soft metric, it, it makes people believe less in your business. Because it makes you look like you're not focused on what matters. When you put 30 under 30 nomination, vote for me nonsense, when, uh, you know, and you're putting in, you know, somebody won a startup award or somebody gave you some great feedback, whatever, like, what, what about customers? Can we talk about the customers? Can we talk about the people using the software? L let's get focused on what matters, folks, you know, and, and I, I would rather see a short update with a lot of facts than some long narrative with no facts. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And, you know, founders don't understand how much of a detriment they're doing themselves when they do that. Mm. You had some strong feelings on products uh, and design. Maybe you talk a little bit because I, I too am a design snob. And if the product does not look good, I'm like, it's 2022 folks, 2021, whatever. Like you, you can't produce a five out of 10 product. You know, this is not, you know, 10 years yeah. ago. You... You need to have a quality product, at least from a visual standpoint, right? And, and, and usability right behind it far more than you needed like a decade ago, right? Lean startup comes out, ship something ugly, learn, you get better, right? Now, when you ship something, it shouldn't be ugly, but don't need to be perfect, right? And I think that's the big thing. But then also, I think when people talk to me about product is, I don't care as much about product as I care about customer acquisition. Right. Because what I know is the best product rarely wins a market. Right. I've seen tons of amazing products that I thought were better than anything on the market that I love that these entrepreneurs put their hearts and souls into building that never went anywhere. Mm. I see companies like that every day. Right. But show me that you know how to get customers, mm. that you know how to give people a feeling, that you know how to get people to keep coming back. That'll give you the runway to fix your product to have a great product, yeah. right? A little market pull goes a long way. If people really appreciate the product and they tell their friends about it, you get a high net promoter score, uh, and it's going to be cheaper. It's going to be cheaper to do paid marketing if it's a great product, then you have less churn, so it becomes yep. more efficient. Do you have, uh, now that you're on this journey and, you're, and you're, you're going at a nice pace in terms of investing in, I think, a couple of startups a month, two or three a yeah. month, maybe? Something, Something like that. that pays, yeah. Um, have you started to click into the personality types uh, that you like to work with and that you see uh, have a better chance of winning? Um, it's the founders who have a chip on their shoulder, kind of like this underdog story who, like, they will do whatever it takes mm. to get where they need to be to the point where, you know, sometimes they tell me what their goals are, what they're going to do. I'm like, you sound crazy. And then two months later, they do it. And it's like, maybe I was the crazy one, right? Like, they, they helped me get to a point where it's like, I'm, I, I can, anything they say, no matter how wild it is, like, I'm just going to believe them. Mm. They're like, hey, you know, tomorrow we're going to build a rocket to the moon. Okay. Send me pictures. Show, show me how it goes, right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, sometimes they're the founders that people think are crazy, right? Like, 
if, if other people are thinking you're crazy, then uh, this might be the right kind of investment for me. You know, if you're going to do this, pure hustle and hard work does go a long way. This idea that you're going to have some sort of life-work balance as a founder, and you're up against a bunch of maniac competitors who don't have a life-work balance, and they've decided they're going to work twice as hard as you, you know, you're probably going to get beat. It's just that easy. You know, and if you're calling 1,100 people to get your $10 million fund done, and somebody else is like, I talked to 10 L potential LPs, and, um, you know, the world's against me, nobody will back me. It's like, well, Mac just did 25 in a day and got one person to give him 10K. Like, there is something about hustle and hard work that is undeniable. Now, I don't want to make you uh, the, the person who has to answer to all stupid white guys tweeting on Twitter, but we, talk, we brought up the discussion of race in the industry. And then Joe Lonsdale, who's kind of a friend of mine, um, or I shouldn't say a friend, but we're friendly. We know each other from the industry. We haven't like, I don't know his kid's name or anything, but I have seen him and met him 10, 20 times. Decided he'd say some stupid stuff on Twitter. I'm certain you've seen it. Yeah. And uh, I'll just read the tweet. There, he, he responded to something that's one dumb hypothesis rape baiters have taught you. A real view. Average black culture needs to step it up and stop having as many kids born out of wedlock, statistical indicator of underperformance, who don't value education or spend much time on homework. You see this tweet from a prominent VC. What was what, your thinking? I feel bad for him. I tweeted and said, like, I feel bad for people who have gotten caught up in propaganda, right? Yeah. Like, you know, if, if you look through the Nixon and Reagan eras of this country, there was a lot of information put out, some by the government, some through other means to create this narrative around what a black person in America is. And it's just fundamentally not true. And even if you talk about, you know, don't care about homework, right? So. If you live in Baltimore City, um, you have a high school education, you graduated, let's say, top 20% of your class, you couldn't get into any public school or didn't have money to go to any public school. So then you end up working in a community like Sanchester Wintown in Baltimore. You know what the median income for Sanchester Wintown is? 17000 That's the median family income. Yeah, that's not single income, that's the family. Yeah. That's the family. And so that yeah. means... These people are working crazy odd jobs. They're doing gig work. They're working at the local McDonald's and the local Burger King. They're making minimum wage at best, basically. At two or three jobs. Yeah. And so when you're doing that, when do you have time to help your child with homework? Right. You're just trying to make sure your child has a place to live. Right. You know, I have family members who don't know what it feels like to have electricity every day. Right. Running water every day. Right. Have a meal every day. Hell, I've had parts of my life where I didn't have meals every day, right? <laughs> but then that's not the story for every black person right. also, right? Yeah. Um, and, and even when you talk about out of wedlock, honestly, there are as many black people who don't have a father in their life. There are 10x the amount of white children who didn't grow up with their father in their life. The only difference was we call it divorce. Hmm. Yeah. And granted, they might not have seen their dad for 10, 15 years, but they'll tell you I had a dad and, you know, I'm different. Right. No, it's pretty much the exact same Yeah, it situation. might be similar, yeah. I, it's It was like such a dumb tweet from Joe and, you know, I tell him that to his face. Like, you know, uh, I, I'm also trying to think of like, what's the intent of this tweet here? You know, like, what what is the goal here? 
Uh, I don't know. I don't know what his goal is. I guess he's. Um, I guess he figures if he he tells people in that kind of a blunt tone, we're going to pick ourselves up by our bootstraps. But the question is, what do you do when you don't have bootstraps or you don't even have boots? What are you yeah. supposed to do? Uh, it, it's something that I've had to give a lot of thought to because I always thought, you know, I started from behind the eight ball because you know I was like, well, I'm the poorest kid I know, or amongst the poorest kids I know in my school, and we're barely getting by, but. Then again, my parents do own their house, even though they're behind on their mortgage or we might be running out of money. Like it was not as dire as the person you described who's working minimum wage to just try to stay. My mom was a nurse. That's like a good job. And so I think it's like a important lesson for people. Uh, certainly one I had to, you know, really let sink in, which is as hard as you think you had it, there are people who have it harder. And then even in America, as hard as we think we have it, there are people in Afghanistan or Pakistan or who knows where, South America somewhere, who have it even harder, right? And one of the great things is, I think, having a discussion about how do we get more people to realize there's an opportunity and how do we, you know, raise the minimum wage, raise, you know, some of these basic concepts of uh, getting a roof over your head, affordable housing uh, and education to, to really help people. Because if you're just trying to <laughs> keep food on the table, like, yeah, there might not be any energy left at the end of the day when you're working three jobs to actually go sit there and do the you know AP math with your kid, right? Yeah. It's like the height of privilege. So, but you know, I I think Joe is a good person who just has a very weird point of view on this. It's like a very weird like right wing point of view. Look, um, I, I, and I, not I helpful. His, but I get his, I understand where people are coming from, right? Like like you said for you. Like if you come up and you feel like, look, I was poor, my family yeah. struggled, and I made it. So if I put in the work and effort, I could get here. That means you, if you put in work and effort, you could get here too. And it's really hard to put yourself in somebody else's shoes to say, well, you knew what work and effort was. Right. I didn't even know that. Right. See, that's like, a key insight, I think. Like I always tell people, like everything you could learn in the world is on YouTube right now. And you found this week in startups as but one example like, to, to go full circle to where we started. And like, I found the other day, MIT course where I just have to stumble upon, like they had a macroeconomics. And I was like, you know, I never got to go to MIT. I don't, I mean, I understand what macroeconomics is. I've read some books, whatever. I was like, I'm going to just play this macroeconomics course in the background while I'm doing some work. I started listening to macroeconomics, microeconomics. I'm like, wow, I'm really starting to learn some stuff that are gaps in my own education as a 50 year old guy. Uh, but if you don't know that the MIT courseware is online or this week in startups exists or Quora exists, like... That's the thing I think we have to, there is a knowing the opportunity, knowing that information is there, knowing there are paths, knowing the strategies, and you are an unlock code. You're a cheat code. That's why I'm so excited to have you on. And I think there's like a great episode that we can build on from here because you figured some stuff out. And like, you know, the, the way you could thank me based, you know, you, you had that very gracious thank you to me is... You just keep doing what you're doing. You keep sharing how you did it, right? And if we all just keep sharing how we did it, when I came into the industry, nobody would show you the term sheet. Nobody would explain to you how venture worked. Nobody, you didn't know who worked there. It was all a black box. All the venture webs, venture people didn't have websites. And if they did have a website, it was like, you know, like whatever capital partners, you know, and the address and like no phone number. And like, you just couldn't get in touch with anybody at those places. Nobody was... Like Elizabeth was like, you know, let me get on the phone with you and try to help this person. I think right. that's one of the most beautiful things about our industry in 2022 is that, and a Twitter plays a part in it, podcast plays a part in it, YouTube plays a part in it. Everybody 
really does want to help each other. I feel so positive about our industry in that, you know, Naval wanted to help me. I helped Naval. Everybody was helping each other 12 years ago, try to create more angel investing syndicates, whatever. Let's figure this all out together. Um, and, and I think that's really like one of the great things you're actually doing every day when you're out there talking about raising funds and explaining to people how you did it. Because the more you help other people, the more it comes back to you in my personal experience. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. And I do it because I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for people like you. There are a lot of people like you along my journey who helped me a lot. Mm. And if not for them, I don't make it here. And so, yeah. you know, I got to do my part to get there. It's, you know, it's life is a random series of events. And sometimes you don't even know, like, you got this boost or you got this help or somebody just opened a door for you. And, really is sharing that knowledge and then just being a good example. All those things can add up. Listen, Mac, this has been great. We did a full hour. Continued success. You're halfway through the fund, a third of the way through the fund? Oh, fully. We were fully uh, committed. You're fully committed, but did you deploy all 10 million? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. We're halfway through the fund. We're halfway, halfway through. through. I was like, yeah. well, you're going a little fast there. <laughs> you want to pace yourself, kid. <laughs> don't, don't blow it. Yeah. That's what, when I first started investing, Ruloff said to me from Sequoia, I said, any advice? You know, I got the, he said, take your time. Take your time. You know, a lot of times people get a little excited when they get their first fun gun. It's like, pow, 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 pow. They just start shooting. And he's like, take your time. Be a sniper. You don't need to have it. It's not a machine gun. You can just really pick pick your spots. Fair enough. Deal yeah. flow has been very high and high quality. So, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, well the good news is you can raise another fund. And in 506C, yes. uh, if you follow Mac, you never know. You might be able to get in on it. All right, listen. Uh, thanks for doing the first episode of season six of the Angel Podcast, and we'll see you all next time. Bye-bye. Bye bye.